Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Full house tonight, even in the rain, Christine. You got them out. Well, thank you all for coming. Hello, everyone, and welcome to tonight's program at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Marisa Lagos. I'm the politics correspondent for KQED Public Radio, and I'm excited to be on stage tonight with Democratic Party strategist, author, mom extraordinaire, Christine Pelosi. Christ- yeah, thank you. A round of applause. Thank you. Christine is an activist with a lifetime's worth of grassroots organizing experience. She's served as political strategist for the Democratic Party, general counsel for the nonprofit We Said Enough, and as the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development special counsel during the Clinton-Gore administration. And as you all know, she is the author of the recently released book, The Nancy Pelosi Way, which she is hawking here herself. <laughs> Advice on Success, Leadership, and Politics from America's Most Powerful Woman. In this book, she draws on her experience as the daughter of Speaker Nancy Pelosi and examines how her mother became the most powerful female politician in America, extracting key lessons for us to apply to our own lives. And she also presents this in-depth account of her mother's personal experience from being a mom of five young kids here in San Francisco, all the way to the halls of power in Washington, and talks a lot about how to become leaders in our our own lives. So we're going to talk about all of that tonight. We are very excited to have here. Please join me in welcoming Christine Pelosi. Thank you. On a personal note, this is fun for me because we talk not all the time, but relatively often about her mom and about democratic politics in my reporting. And on a personal note, her daughter, Bella, was very sweet to my child when I took him to the democratic convention at five months old a couple of years ago. Um, So unfortunately, Bella couldn't be here tonight. But Christine, we're so excited to have you. And I wanted to start by asking you how the idea for this book came about and, and what you really were you know, hoping to impart on the world with this little slice of Nancy Pelosi. Well, thank you, Marissa. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Thank you to the Commonwealth Club for having us. It's always great uh, to come back to the Commonwealth Club and enjoy. And thanks, obviously, to the members who make this possible. Um, this book was not what I was planning to do. Like so much in my life, it happened with a phone call and somebody said, well, we're writing a book about women, women leaders, and we want to write, um, it's themed the way of the person. So we have the RBG way about our fabulous Justice Ginsburg. We have the AOC way about our wonderful Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And we want to do the Nancy Pelosi way about your mom. Can you help us? You know, we know you've written a couple of books and, you know, can you help us write it? And I said, well, I will write it, but it has to be very Highway. quick. <laughs> All right. Well, it has to be done quickly because I want to be clear that I want the book to come out before people start voting for president. Because I think everybody running for president should be at least as talented and together as Nancy Pelosi. So this is the standard, right? So I spent 100 days writing it on my phone. Bella would say, what are you doing on your phone, mom? I'm like, I'm writing the book. Um, oh, on the phone, because if you use the note section on your phone and you travel on planes as often as I do, at least once every two weeks, if not more, you don't want to deal with Wi-Fi and email. Just put it on your phone. And it automatically saves. And it automatically you know, saves. Did, you never lost any work? I never lost any work. So that was like very helpful. Like for Apple over here. And then, <laughs> and then um, 
so, so that was the goal in writing the book. And I was finished. I was done. And we were in copy edits. And then there was a mugging well, on Adam Schiff's block, um, uh, a, a bribery with the president of Ukraine. So all of a sudden, um, I was flying to Washington to join San Francisco's own Maddie Scott and so many of our friends who have have um, had their kids killed by um, gun violence at the National Gun Violence Victims Memorial. So I was flying to D.C. anyway uh, for that. And it happened that that was the week um, that my mom announced that there would be an impeachment inquiry. So there is an afterwards that you'll probably want to read as well. So that was the story of writing the book. I did it on my phone. I did it in a hundred days. I did not interview my mom and I did not let her read it until it was published. And I sent it to her and I was so excited to send it to her. And the post office lady was so excited. Carlotta from the post office in Marco <laughs> was so excited about getting a picture. I forgot to put my return address on it. So her security almost didn't let her have it. Um, and she said, is this is this thin envelope from you? Is that the book or is that something we should send to be looked at? I said, no, that's from me. So that is the story of the book. It was exciting to write. And, um, you know, I talk to my mom almost, almost every day. So if you think about a hundred conversations, think that could be like a hundred interviews. That That's a lot of detail. So I thought it would be better if I just wrote what I was learning for her. And I told her, you're just going to have to trust 50 years of parenting. It took her, it didn't. <laughs> and her, what, what are her reviews so far? Well, she did call with a few copy edits. Like, no, you know, as moms do. Uh, you know, just as long as she's going to do another edition, here's a few grammar edits. And I knew she would, you know, when I was yeah. writing, I thought she's not going to like this, but I, you know, like her as, I can't remember. Um, she's a very, very solid classic Catholic education. So Nancy Pelosi always edits. Um, but also then she said to me, and this was great, Marissa, she said, I think it's a little too flattering. I said, mom, of all the problems that parents have about children writing, tell all yeah, books right? about them. Too flattering is very low on the list of problems. Yeah. I think you're okay. Well, we won't get to what our siblings No, I'm just kidding. Um, well, let's talk about that because you know, a lot of what you draw on here is her experience as a mom informing her experience as a leader. And I got to say, as a mom of two young boys, I am still in awe. Like, yes, of course, that she's the speaker and the first female speaker, but that she raised five kids who were born within six years and two days of one another. Is that the... Six years and one week. So when one Nancy Corinne okay. turned six, a week later, Alexandra came home from the hospital. That's so crazy. That's a lot. But here's the thing. Um, Friday morning after Thanksgiving, just a few days ago, I came into the kitchen. I get very early, came to the kitchen about six o'clock. The table was preset as it has been since I was a little kid because every day started the night before. So you parents of multiples can understand before you begin the day, you have to begin the night before. After you do the dinner dishes and you put them away, you set out the cereal and set the table for breakfast and get that ready and have make sure that what you need is in the fridge because then the next morning, five kids are going to come downstairs, eat their breakfast, make their own lunch assembly style. And if you know that by 8 o'clock every weekday morning, there have to be five kids out the door, homework done, fed, lunches in hand, bus fare, it was five cents then, 55 Sacramento, transferred to the three Jackson. Uh, 
to get to Convent of the Sacred Heart for the girls and town school for my brother. Yeah, that was the routine every day. And so if you think about that now, you would just think, I'm going to lose my mind, right? It's like having a baby and thinking, I have to change 5,000 diapers a year. Right. Like, you just can't think of it in you those just terms. You just you, you can't. You just have to So would she sleep after she's at the table? Does she sleep? Oh, no, she does sleep she a does. little bit. And um, she wakes up. Um, and our breakfast would be cereal, but it should be known that Nancy Pelosi eats chocolate ice cream for breakfast. <laughs> or really, I think any chocolate she's happy with. Dark right? chocolate. Yeah, dark chocolate. Um, well, but before she was the mom of five, I, I feel like in so many ways, a lot of what you really outline in this book is how much of what she has done in the house over the last 20, 30 years even is really was the seeds were planted in Baltimore, right? Um, her dad was a mayor and a congressman. Her brother was the mayor. Um, and she, can you talk a little bit about like her family and upbringing and the lessons she learned just as a little girl, even though at that time there was no expectation that she would go into politics, right? I mean, that, that was not the path of her generation. No, it wasn't. So Nancy Pelosi was born in Baltimore, Maryland to Tommy and Annunciata, Nancy, uh, D'Alessandro. And uh, so when she was a little girl, her mother had come over from Italy as a as a little girl. Um, we took we took Bella and Octavio um, to you know, the kids to Ellis Island where um, to see where the families had had come through. So my grandmother um, Nancy was born in Italy, came over. She lived at on Albemarle Street. She moved next door when she married my grandfather. The in laws lived across the street, so she literally didn't physically make it out of little Italy, but she was a dreamer. She, she had uh, a patent for, um, a facial steamer cream. She, she sold, um, insurance. She ran a moccasin army for my grandfather's political activities. My, our friends, uh, Susan Pfeiffer, Sasha Bittner are here. They, they do the same kind of headquarters work that my grandmother was doing. And it's really, you know, the women that were leading the charge. And my grandmother at one point had matriculated at the University of Maryland Law School. But then this is before vaccines. And so one of my mom's older brothers died. Of, and so of pneumonia. So she had to come home. So many, many years later, I uh, passed the California bar exam and uh, sent my grandmother uh, an invitation to my swearing in. I mean, I knew she wouldn't come, but I thought, well, this is, I sent my grandmother every announcement of everything. But she wrote me back and she said, how happy I am to see you accomplish what I could not 55 years ago. So you see, she had, in the back of her mind, she should have been an attorney. In the back of her mind, she had this dream that I only realized as as a young adult that I was carrying and that my mother was carrying. She really actually fought my my, uh, uncles and my grandfather for my mom to go all the way to... Trinity College in Washington, D.C. I was going to ask that. So 50 she miles. Was, she was, a she was the one that pushed it. And my, my, <laughs> the story they, they recently told at my uncle Tommy's funeral, my uncle Tommy D'Alessandro passed. I'm at the age of 90, um, in October. And so at his funeral, my, my cousin told the story about how grandma had really pushed, um, for my mom to get an education. And at one point, my grandfather said, she'll leave Baltimore over my dead body. And grandmom said half jokingly, well, that can be arranged. (laughs) (laughs) Needless to say, they thought her plan was to be a nun, which would obviously make this a very different kind of interview. Um, (laughs) 
But that was the plan. It was the the nuns were very, very strict. My mom's first public speech was when her father was inaugurated as mayor and she gave him a, there's a picture of it in the book. Um, she gives him a Bible and says, I hope this book will help you to be a good man. And that was always what they wanted, not to be a good politician, but to be holy, but to be a good person. And that, that, that there was a, a virtue in public service. So for my mom was a little, little girl, her first seat at the table, as it were, was really involuntary. They'd say, sit at the table. People would come in to the D'Alessandro home wanting to get a meal, wanting to know you know, how to get into the hospital, how to get a job, how to get somebody in jail or out of jail, depending on the circumstances. Um, but then my mom would help them out, would make the referral call, and then she would write down the information and the name and the phone number in what they called the favor file. And then years, months or years would go by and somebody else would have the same problem and they'd come in and they'd look through the favor file and they go, oh, we helped Marissa on that a couple of years ago. Now let's call her and have her help this person down the line. That is actually very similar to how she weaves votes as Speaker of the House. <laughs> so what she learned at age 10 is something that she's still doing now. And she was also writing down their number, their, their house number, their phone number, so she could call them back to help campaign for the next uh, vote, I take it? Well, to help campaign, but also to help with the specific issue that they had. Mm-hmm. So someone needed public housing, let's call that person. Someone needed a job, hey, now that they got that job, let's see if they can get somebody right. else a job. So the whole idea is what, you know, what they say down the street at Delancey Street Foundation, each one teach one. Mm-hmm. But everybody has to help somebody else. And so that was the nature. It was a very organic politics. And and for those of you who have been in and out of our headquarters know, we're very, very connected with that idea of the VIPs in politics are the volunteers in politics. And and those are the people who do the work. It wasn't until later, um, no, my mom went to a, a summer school class called Africa South of the Sahara at Georgetown, which was at that point... Um, all men, but the summer school is co-ed. And it was taught by Professor Quigley, who went on to be um, a professor, a very influential professor of President Clinton. And um, and it was the time, it was the JFK era. And uh, and so she met my dad in the class. Um, her college roommate, Rita Meyer, Rita Murray, was the sister of, of one of my dad's friends. So they got to know each other. These college friends still get together twice a year, all these years later. So... Um, one thing led to another, and it was more and more opportunities to take her seat at the table and to bring other women with her because you always get a scarcity argument. There's only room for one, you know, one person with a disability, one person of color, one woman. And then when you're the one, you have to be the one that represents everyone. And some people feed into that scarcity argument. And I talk about this in the book where, you know, they, they, they think, well, I have to be jealous of other people. So I, maybe I should just be the one person at the table and not fight for other people to come. But the Nancy Pelosi way is to bring others and make sure that you have always have more diversity so you have a more authentic and full conversation. I mean, it also strikes me reading this in, in my conversations with you and to some extent with the speaker herself that like she's always just had a very keen ability to remember names and faces and and things about people that, that is that something that you think like a lot of people in your family have or is that something specific to nancy pelosi well nobody has it like nancy pelosi she knows my father has a lot of it too my father paul is actually the more political one hmm. he would say oh marcos is here yeah so his wife eleni oh okay so i know her dad and we were all just playing tennis together and you're like 
okay, that's all very interesting, but how do you draw that out of one person? Right. Yeah. But he would go around the room and tell the story about each of you. So my mom is very good at those moments, but it's actually my, she's actually really shy. It's my dad, the one that's not shy. So it's sort of interesting that she's the one that became the politician. I remember we were not too far from here. Um, maybe some of you were there at the um, at the parade that they had to celebrate the 100 years since the earthquake and fire and was to honor the San Francisco Fire Department. So they had this big parade down Market Street heading towards uh, the ferry building. And I was dancing away. And she's saying, how close are we? How close are we? I'm, well, look at the ferry building, Mom. We're, we're as close as the ferry building. You know, it's that many blocks away. So I dance a little more and finally she looked over and she said, you have inherited none of my natural shyness. <laughs> <laughs> so at the pride parade, we're all dancing away and she like gets into the spirit of it, but really she'd be home, you know, be just as comfortable, you know, cheering everybody else on right. being home. So, but she's very, very good at not only uh, connecting with people, but also empowering people to be storytellers. You know, there's, I think a shift, and I talk about this in the book, about how for a long time there has been a tradition in politics where you tell a story about somebody. You want to talk to a story about poverty, a story about public education, a story about health care. So you get the story of somebody who's in poverty or who's a public school teacher or who's a health care patient or a nurse, and you and you tell their story for them. But there's been this shift, and, and, and Nancy Pelosi has been a really big part of shifting it to let's hand them the microphone and let them tell their own story. Let's lift up their own story, and then let's build an army of support around them so that when they tell that story and they get attacked for telling that story, they feel there's a community that has their back and that's going to stand up with them. So I think that that is really her skill. It's not just that she remembers names, but also that she remembers these emotional experiences. And as you know, Maya Angelou always said, I may forget what you said, but I will always remember how you made me feel. Well, we'll get back to that. But I do want to talk a little bit about her life raising you five kids and how that did actually lead her into politics. But I got to say, as a young mom, there was like a couple anecdotes in this book that just cracked me up and spoke to me. Um, one of them was about her like organization. You talked about how she would set the table the night before, but you have this anecdote in the book about how she handled things like um, dressing the kids. Talk about that. She just dressed you all the same, right? She dresses all the same. That's why we're all so different. You see my shiny red shoes. You can't see them on the radio, but just imagine them being there. Um, I think that's why we are all so different because when we were little, okay, so four of us went to the Convent of the Sacred Heart for a combined 48 years. So that's a lot. Um, and so we had to wear uniforms during the week and white shoes. I don't know if the nuns had a concession with the white shoe yeah. polish people, but who would think of like little girls in, I mean, they, maybe they didn't know us, but we had to you know, polish our white shoes every day and go to school. So we were all dressed alike during the day. After school, we could wear whatever we wanted as long as we, you know, changed out of our uniforms and did our homework. Then we could wear what we wanted. But on the weekend, she'd say, okay, go to the laundry room, pull out the white cords and the yellow turtleneck. And everybody would run to go do it. She would just have it. We were all folding our own laundry by the time we were really, really little. And, um, and then stacking up to go. And because there were so many kids born right in a row undoubtedly there'd be one scuffed shirt, you know, there'd be one pair of pants with holes. And if you weren't, weren't quick, you know, you, that's what you ended up with. And the sisters, a little Lord of the flies, dresses. but pretty well, smart. It was more like, <laughs> look, you have to 
Be responsible. Proper preparation prevents poor performance. You better prepare. You better get to that laundry room. You better pick the right clothes. And my poor brother, Paul, would have to wear, we'd all be wearing like the sailor dresses. Then he'd be wearing like the sailor pantsuit. It was almost worse to be him because it was so painfully obvious. She was trying just to keep us, because then they could find out where we were. So think if you were going to JK Park, which we went to all the time in the Presidio, you know, a generation before my mom would leave the fight to save it. Um, from being sold off to developers, we were a family you know, playing in the park and we'd have five different kids on five, each on a different play structure. And she'd sort of look around and sort of watch us all and, and kind of listen and say, like, oh, I'm going to let the drama go for a little while until we really have like an injury. Uh, like a another serious, piece like, of advice like, I'm taking. You know, right? Seriously, like unless they've like drawn blood or there's like a bro- there's like a cracking sound. What is it? You play you rough, you get hurt. Be. You play That's- rough, you get hurt. That's what she would always say. And then if you told on someone, she'd say, "Don't be a miss. Make matters worse." <laughs> right? Don't make matters worse. So, because then you're going to get in more trouble for telling on someone than they might have gotten for having the trouble to begin with. Because she wanted to teach us not to gossip about each other, not to rat each other out, and. um and if somebody was in trouble, they, she wouldn't do that in front of everybody else because she didn't want us to have the satisfaction of, you know, those pangs of justice being satisfied by watching your sibling get in trouble. So this, I, I mean, I bring this up not just because it's cute and funny, but it is, <laughs> but also because it seems like a lot of that intuition is something that she has carried with her into Congress. And I think like this point about, you know, not telling people secrets having those conversations behind closed doors is very much part of that leadership style that, that you're talking about here. Is that fair? Well, when you're the leader of the party of any organization, and you all know this, that you might be the leader of a club, you might be the, you know, the, the confidant of your family, certainly by the time you get to be the House Democratic leader or the Speaker of the House, you are everybody's confidant. You know, they'll come to you and they say, this is what I need. This is what I have. I have this situation at home. And, and it's interesting when I watched my mother's rise, I was serving as, as, as Marissa mentioned, as, um, a special counsel in the housing uh, department and then a chief of staff on Capitol Hill. So I was there, um, before when, when she was a member of Congress. And then I was there when she, um, rose up the ranks. And it was interesting to watch because, she would always say, you know, so the basic advice that I give in my campaign boot camp books, which is if they'll do it for you, they'll do it to you. So it all sounds fun to gossip about someone until you're the one that's getting gossiped about. But the one thing that she t- we talk about in the Nancy Pelosi way is that she'll always say, do these people want to be led? Like fundamentally, do they want to be led? Then it's do they want to be led by me? Because some people don't want to be led. Think about it. You know, when you look at these candidates and they say, what are they about? You know, if they're like, they like long walks on the beach alone, they're not going to be a team player, right? Who's going to go to them? If they're people that are like, well, I just sort of want to be a philosopher king. No, you're not a king, actually. You're um, an elected official, right? You tip your hat to us, not the other way around. So I think being a good keeper of secrets, like she does not gossip. And not only that, but she really tries to make each day be a new day. So I'll give you an example from the book about dating. She would say about dating, never date a cheap man because he'll be cheap with his emotions, he'll be cheap with his money, he'll be cheap with his love. So you might say, oh, I'm dating this guy. How was it? Well, I did have to kind of circle back, pretend I left my lipstick on the table so I could add another five bucks, right? I'm like, oh, yeah, interesting. Oh, okay, so he doesn't tip. And then like three months later, you'd be like, oh, I broke up with that cheapskate. She'd go, oh, well, 
you do remember the first date, right? You know, she kind of like zing you, but you didn't, you didn't, she didn't bug you about it for the 90 days. But the minute you were done, she'll be like, good. And she'll, you know, well, why didn't you remind me? Well, it wasn't my place to remind you. It was your place to remind yourself. So she doesn't really, um, she doesn't really lecture people. She more just reminds them of the things that they said were their own standard of how they wanted to act. So it's that thing where she would say, I know you children wouldn't do that. And I tell the story in the book of when um, uh, the president was uh, wanting us to pay for the wall that Mexico was going to pay for and shutting down the government and keeping it shut in order to hold this, you know, everybody ransom for this wall. Um, and then finally he, he thinks he's on the verge of getting it. He doesn't get it. And and then, so the speaker says, well, you're not getting the state of the union address. You're not going to get to come and do a national security event, um, and not pay people to put their lives on the lot, their line uh, to defend you. We're not going to do that. So then he gets mad and says, well, then you can't go on your, I'm going to take away your military plane. You can't go on your trip. And they leaked that the trip she was supposed to be on was going to Afghanistan. So obviously she can't fly commercial into Afghanistan. So the flight has to be postponed. So a reporter asks her, what do you think the president canceled your trip? Because you canceled the state of the union. And she looked and she smiled. I don't think he would be that petty. Do you? <laughs> and we were, so Nancy Corinne tells this report, that was exactly our childhood, right? You children wouldn't do that. I know you're not going to that R-rated movie. I know none of my children were driving the car and brought it home late after curfew without gas. I know that didn't happen in my house. And so you're already like on this like some guilt good trip. Catholic guilt. Big me. time. So, but that's her way of sort of, you know, there's, there's, because here's the thing about parenting, as we all know, if everything's important, nothing's important, right? And you can't ground your kids constantly. Even if you did, they'd be underfoot and then you try to figure out a way to get them out of the house, right? So you can't, you have to prioritize and you have to use humor and you have to use wisdom. But as she always says to us, you don't have to set the world straight every time. And if you're constantly grading your children, then they're not going to, they're never going to feel like they can please you, yeah. that they can succeed. And um, it's actually quite more crafty just to let them think that you know what they're up to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as she's raising you guys all here in San Francisco, she did start getting involved in party politics, um, organizing, raising money. Um, she was eventually appointed to the Library Commission um, by Joe Alioto, who was mayor then. What, do you think that was kind of a turning point for her in her career? Well, yes and no. And she always tells this story because she's very proud that her first, Nancy Pelosi's first official title was library commissioner. So uh, Mayor Alioto, who lived uh, up the block from us and was friends with my Uncle Tommy, who had been mayor of Baltimore in the late 60s. They knew each other. This is 1973. So he calls and he says, Nancy, what are you doing making a big bowl of pasta. And she's now I'm reading the paper. Um, cause that time the New York times used to come at like four o'clock in the afternoon. So she's reading the paper and he says, I want you to go on the library commission. And she said, Oh no, Mr. Mayor, you don't need me to do that. Um, I, we volunteer anyway. We love the library. We're always there. We stack the books. We go to the events. We're fine. And he says, no, 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 you should do it. You should get the credit. You should get official recognition. And you never know. You might want to run for office someday. I'm never going to run for office. Well, she takes the title. And she always tells the story to say to women, take the title. 
right? Don't do the girl thing of, oh, no, I'm volunteering. No, take the title. Because no man would ever say, oh, that's all right, I'll just volunteer, right? Jump in there. And it was funny because Joe Aliotta wasn't exactly known as being a raging feminist, was he? Well, right. I mean, the first question was, are you making, are you, are you cooking? Right. But (laughs) his point was, once you have a vote, then you have an opinion. And they did a lot because people wanted to close the neighborhood branches. They were running out of money. So they went and had their meetings in the neighborhood branches around the city to draw people in and say, hey, do you still really want this library? What are we going to do? How can we change the way that we do things? Then they needed some state money so um, that she got to know Leah McCarthy so they could go up there and, and, and you know, ask him to bring in some resources. He was the assembly member and, and speaker of the assembly from San Francisco, became a lifelong friend. And then she started raising um, money for Jerry Brown. And we loved Jerry Brown. His He came to our house he, even, the first time. Even though he outed your, your Oh, my God. Okay, let me tell you what he did. And then I'm still kind of bitter about it, but I still love him. But here's what happened. So we had this um, house where we would have these volunteers in politics would have events at our home and we'd be serving the crudités and, and, and getting everything ready. But before then, the guests of honor would come early, do their meetings. Alan Cranston would run with all of us, the senator. And we all had these buttons that said, I ran with Senator Cranston. He'd lace up. We'd all run with him. Jerry Brown ran alone. And um, <laughs> his button said... If you think education is expensive, try ignorance, which is very Jerry. Very Jerry. (laughs) And we thought it was cool that he came and all until one day he came downstairs from the third floor where Jacqueline and I lived. And he said, what's the name of your cat? Well, my parents didn't know that we had a cat living upstairs. And after that, we didn't. So we always thought a little bit that he outed the cat. It was like, thanks a lot, governor. Um, So that was really, that was really quite sad. We, oh, yeah, the cat oh, was yeah, gone. The cat. Yeah, they were like, what do you mean you have a cat? Because there's no cat lives in this house. Well, yeah, not after that. But other than that, it was, <laughs> it was rather um, exciting. So I have to do, just tell you this one story about Jerry Brown, though. So he um, is running for president. Leo McCarthy is in 1976. He's dating Linda Ronstadt. He's the cool, quirky, California futuristic governor. And... Um, and so he is running and Leo McCarthy is chairing his campaign for president. And, and my mom says, you know, he's gotten really late. She calls Leo and says, look, Jerry's in way too late. He, California is in June. Our primary was in June. Then he's never going to make a splash. Maryland, you can just jump in. You need a very short time to file for the Maryland primary. He should go run in Maryland. So she takes him home. So she takes new age California home to meet old school Baltimore. Remember, can't leave except for my dead body. Grandma, I'm living within, you know, three doors of her in-laws and outlaws, right? All right there. So, but they love, they, they, they click. And so Tommy takes Jerry over to the University of Maryland and they go to this gymnasium and all these kids are hanging from the rafters and they're screen, you know, it's a big, 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 big event and the young kids love them. And Jerry says, now after this event, I want everybody to go home. And Tommy's thinking to himself, and vote. And Jerry says, and put a brick in your toilet tank. And everybody <laughs> cheered. And Tommy said, well, man, I'm 40 years old. I must be a dinosaur in politics if people are giving a cheer for a brick in the toilet tank. <laughs> but Jerry Brown won the Maryland primary. He credited Nancy Pelosi and the D'Alessandros for helping him win. And so after that, he... Um, he had an appointment to the Democratic National Committee delegation from California, so he appointed 
um, Nancy, she ran for northern chair of the party and then state chair, and that was really it. So the Library Commission saying yes to Joe Alioto, not just doing the work, but taking the title was the first step, and then helping Jerry Brown um, win the Maryland primary is what led to her um, running herself for, for party office and doing that. And I can't think of two more different people than Nancy Pelosi and Jerry Brown in so many ways. <laughs> Celebrate New Year's Eve and ring in 2020 with the perfect view at the Commonwealth Club's premier Embarcadero location. As thousands of spectators watch from below, you'll revel in rooftop views of the famous Embarcadero fireworks, indulgent cuisine, high-end spirits, lively entertainment, and the ultimate New Year's Eve experience. Our New Year's Eve party was ranked in the top 10 parties of San Francisco. So visit our website and reserve your spot today. CommonwealthClub.org You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Um, well, and the other thing that happened after that was that she helped uh, really spearheaded bringing the 1984 uh, Democratic Convention to San Francisco. And I want to talk about that, but I want to talk about it in the framework of something that she, I think, was has been really ahead of her time on, which is around her activism around LGBT issues and AIDS. Um, and there was something you mentioned in the book I wanted to ask about, which is you said one of her flower girls in her wedding had AIDS? Yes. Um, my cousin um, yesterday, as you know, was um, World AIDS Day. And one of the things I posted yeah. was a um, part of the AIDS quilt, which is now coming home uh, to San Francisco. Uh, thank you, Cleve Jones and and community. Um, but Susan uh, Paraki, she was a flower girl at my mom's uh, wedding. and And she had AIDS. Uh, and was one of the earlier, uh, one of the earliest deaths of AIDS in, uh, Maryland. Um, in California, what was happening, and at the time I was a casework intern in the office of, uh, Sala Burton. And, uh, what happened was they knew something was happening at UCSF. It was Kaposi sarcoma. They called it the gay cancer. It was a lot of, um, like, freckles became moles that became something else and, and people didn't really know what it was and it was a very scary scary time and um you know long time hiv positive and survivor uh, tom kelly's here and you know, was very active with project inform all those years um could tell us you know what it was like but it was like two funerals a day it was just decimating the community and at the same time nancy pelosi was chair of the california democratic party and she really wanted to bring the democratic national convention to san francisco she'd invited all the potential candidates out to her state convention in 1982 and there was like eight of them running and she thought well wouldn't it be great if we hosted the convention and um diane feinstein was mayor at the time named a host committee named nancy uh to be uh in charge of it and one of the things they had to deal with was the fear the real fear of like, I don't want to you know, be with people who are gay. What if I can catch um, AIDS by uh, food service? So one of the things I talk about in the book is how um, when they were doing these parties for the uh, convention host committee, um, which are members of the Democratic National Committee and, and elected officials and people who had put on conventions before, go around and they visit the potential host cities. And they look at all the logistics. Daughter of a mayor, Nancy Pelosi, knew how to do logistics. 
But they also look at the culture. And so one of the things that my mom would say, she'd say to uh, a gay person, okay, we're going to both dip or chip at the same time into the guacamole and eat at the same time. So people will see that we are not afraid of each other. And so it was a very actual beautiful thing that the committee, you know, they learned and they became educated and the convention came here. And one of the things that when um, Sala died and my mom ran for Congress, her, her maiden speech on the floor of the House was, I'm Nancy Pelosi and I'm here to fight AIDS. What do you think? I mean, it sounds like she had gay friends and obviously mm-hmm. was living through that in the moment. But she also came from, as we've talked about, this sort of very, you know, traditional conservative Catholic background. Um, do you think that was ever like a question in her mind or it, it just seems so interesting to me that she was so progressive on that so early. Well, I think there's there's two things. I mean, if you look at the trajectory of how we talk about human rights uh, and how we talk about LGBTQ rights in the realm of privacy, we used to talk about a right to privacy, and that's something that you do yourself. Now we talk about it in terms of justice, which is something that we can do together. And so I think that Nancy Pelosi and Henry Waxman were some of the first people that really took the straight people who fighting for AIDS, HIV research money in the Congress, but just as public officials who made the leap from privacy where people would say, okay, you have the right to privacy. I don't want to hear about it. Okay. And that of course is very repressed Catholic. They don't want to hear about anything um, to this is something that we can talk about as a community. And when you, you look even now in the presidential race, when people are saying, well, are there certain community, communities more homophobic than us? No. Every community, and, and none more so than I would say the Catholic community, when I chaired the California Democratic Party Platform Committee and we put marriage equality in the platform in, uh, you know, over a decade ago, the first place we had to go was to our Latino legislators who were being denied communion for even being for gay rights, never mind marriage. So... I think that I would trace, you know, in the Nancy Pelosi way, one thing she's always said is her family grew up being Catholic, Italian, patriotic, and democratic. Very, very proud of their upbringing. My my uncle Tommy worked with Martin Luther King. He told some great stories about working with Dr. King in Baltimore and um, passing an accommodations law and trying to get that passed, and the people in the restaurants saying, well, we don't want any black people in the restaurants. And he'd be like, fine, you have no cooks, you have no busboys, you have no wait staff. Okay, you don't want anybody, you don't get anybody. So um, needless to say, they integrated. But there was this parade they had in Baltimore. It was called the I Am an American Parade. Okay. Um, Kind of a MAGA, if you will. And so from one end of Baltimore to the other, my uncle got booed. Booed. And it didn't, the boos didn't bother him. What bothered him was that they also booed the cardinal. So it was interesting because you, he was daily communicant. So it was interesting. I think that there were a lot of people who, who maybe even some still, but were from a generation where they talked about privacy rights. And then they had to shift over to justice. And I think now we're all a lot more comfortable talking about justice. But again, that's also um, Nancy Pelosi's politics. It wasn't just that she felt more comfortable saying, let's talk, live in community and talk about justice, but also let's have people tell their own stories. Because the more you know about somebody, then the harder it is to discriminate against them because this is your teacher. This is your friend. This is your, your, your child's best friend's 
parent. And so I think that the more we shift towards justice, the more we'll have human rights around the world. And I do think Nancy Pelosi was a pioneer in that. You, it's interesting. You talked earlier about her being shy. And one of the other themes of this book is this idea of letting people sort of speak for themselves, advocate for themselves, whether it be in Congress, whether it be, you know, at, you know, the parade or a, at a protest. Um, is that, I mean, it seems to me that's both strategic and also in terms of building coalition, but also probably a place she's more comfortable is letting other people kind of take the spotlight sometimes. Is that fair? Yes, I think that one of the things that you know, three three years ago well, that was a difficult time. Uh, three years ago, right after the election, um, was but the night before the election, we were like, okay, well, so Hillary's going to win. We're going to do this, 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 and then there was like, but what if on the small, 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 small one percent chance Trump wins? What happens then? And we said, well, if he wins, it's going to be all powerful the Supreme Court and for healthcare. So. Once he had been declared the winner, right away, she said, we have to get on the phone. So Nancy Pelosi gets on the phone and says, we have to get on the phone with all these people we've been on the phone with doing Get Out the Vote. We have to get back on the phone with the activists. We have to revive the Faces of Care movement that passed the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act in the first place. We have to protect this as her sixth child, her baby. Like We have to protect health care for people because we know they're going to come right at it. And so from the very first weekend, which was Veterans Weekend, we had the veterans leading the calls. She started to have these grassroots calls with people who were doing a lot of the social media work for the, for, for, um, advocacy groups. And they were saying, our members are hurting. This is what they care about. These are their stories. And she wanted to hear that unencumbered by staff and pollsters and experts and democratic strategists. She just wanted to hear it from the people. So I'll just give you two quick stories about how that translated into the history that many of you were a part of over the past three years, and particularly the past two years before um, we won the House back. And that was um, one was because from the start, she said, we're going to save um, Social Security disability insurance. They tried. So as you remember, you know, Ted Cruz tried to say that's not really Social Security. We're like, dude, it's in the name. OK, it's Social Security disability insurance. We're going to save Medicare and we're going to save Medicaid. And then it got to be about March. And I remember, forget it was, it was spring break. Some of you were on the call. I didn't have the mute button. I was trying to get Belle out of the pool and you're going mute, mute. Um, but. There was this poll, these people enamored with the Trump-Obama voter were like, you can't save Medicaid because when we poll these voters, they say they don't know anybody on Medicaid. Well, part of that is that Medicaid is called different things in all 50 states. It's not called Medicaid. She could be on it and not know it. And second of all, for other people, there was such a culture of shame around debt and poverty that they didn't want to admit that they were on Medicaid. And third, there were people who didn't even know that they were on Medicaid, like, oh, mom's in a nursing home. Well, the nursing home is paid for in part by Medicaid. They didn't know that. So we needed Medicaid stories. And the people with disabilities rose up and they said, um, we're going to do this because we know this issue. The veterans said, we're going to do this because we have 1.7 million veterans in America who are on Medicaid and America should be ashamed, not us. We'll be the faces of that. So people started telling their own stories. And let's face it, if you're a successful white lady from San Francisco and you say, you really ought to save healthcare for poor people, like that sounds awful, right? That's not going to work. That sounds very noblesse obrise. It sounds elitist. No one wants to say that. But if you're that woman and you say, let me pass the microphone, to a person with disabilities or a person with a medically complex 
uh, child or to a veteran who's fought for his country and is now on food stamps and Medicaid, and they will tell their own story. It it fits her. Share the microphone. It fits her shyness because someone else tells the story, but it also fits the moment of politics where people really needed to be empowered to tell their own stories. And 10,000 grassroots events later, we were able to protect our care and build the coalition that won back the House and that is fighting tooth and nail in court right now to try to keep it. So thank you. We're not going to get to everything. I had a whole so we'll ACA do, we'll do section, <laughs> but, but so somebody in the audience asks, and I'm going to amend this question a little bit too, but I'll just read it first. How can she cope with the nonstop lying? Um, I would, ex- I would expand that to ask more on a personal level about the attacks on her. You detail in the book. I think there was something like 137,000 ads taken out in the 2018 cycle alone that, that basically vilified Nancy Pelosi specifically. Um, and, most people in this room have probably heard what she said, which is, I don't care what you do as a Democratic candidate, just win, baby. Um, and I don't know. I've talked to her about it myself, and she just seems to let it roll off her back. But I'm not – I don't totally understand how that's possible. Because she has a higher purpose. You know, we, we – um, But you disagree with her on that, right? But, well – One, in terms of her higher purpose, you know, Wednesday night, there's going to be the national um, vigil for um, victims of gun violence in San Francisco here. We'll have um, something on December 14th, the actual anniversary of the Sandy Hook massacre. So this month is, you know, it's just so hard between the holidays, people, everybody who has an empty chair at their table for whatever reason, it's hard. But it's particularly brutally hard for people whose children were killed by gun violence. And who know that there's an answer out there that works and that's being held up by Mitch McConnell in the Republican Senate because Donald Trump doesn't want him to do it. And so we're not going away. So when you get attacked, like what's she supposed to do? Look into the eyes of those Sandy Hook moms or of Maddie Scott or Fred Gutenberg and say, well, you know, they, they were mean to me, so I couldn't get out and fight for your kid today. No, you have to have a higher purpose than that. If you're in politics, it is rough. She says you have to throw a punch and take a punch for the children. Um, but you really have to get out there and fight. And there's no excuse. You can't use the excuse of people were mean to me. People were awful to me um, to say that, therefore, what? You're, you're going to be conditioned your allyship of, well, I'm going to be for civil rights and justice if I'm not attacked today. No. Think of all the people that have that 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 just put their higher purpose first. And she really does. My beef with it isn't that because I think that's right. beautiful and that's a great state that we should all try to get to whatever your higher purpose is, your call to service is. I'm like, mom, you spoil people so badly because no leader of a Democratic or Republican party, am I right, Def Sondheim, Republican party leader? No leader of any political party other than it's supposed to is going to say, just win, baby. People don't do that. They're like, no, be respectful of the leader. Be respectful of the party. I feel like I look at these candidates for president, both sides of the aisle, and I think, there's no way that they have the fortitude to be able to say, just win, then we'll build a mosaic, a tapestry, we'll weave it together for the country. I think she is singularly able to do that. And that, you know, I'm more like, okay, that's fine. 
when the Republicans attack you, but why are you raising money for Democrats who are going to take your money, spend it against you and attack you? And you're going to say, just win, baby. Like, how can we tell people um, to have, you know, shall we say behavior modification if they're just going to be like, you know, problematic like that, right? I mean, it's like every day we're watching an ad and it's like the prodigal son. I feel like the brother in the prodigal son, you know, there's two kids. There's the one that doesn't leave. And he says to the dad, the one that left, you're having the party for. I stayed. Where's my party? And I was like, well, you know, he's back. Um, and we're happy. And so, you know, you sort of, there, there's sort of something that seems very unfair about that. But she would just laugh and say, I can't even believe you're, like, wasting this time on that question when there's so many important things you should be talking about. So all I can say is I think it's really enlightened leadership to be able to say, I'm going to put that sacrifice. And it's easy to say when you sacrifice your time or your money or your reputation, it's a lot harder when the very people you're trying to elect are busy digging into you from your left or from your right. And that's the true test of leadership when you're still willing to take all that public criticism from your own party and say, just win, baby. Well, let's talk about that criticism. Because as you know, I mean, the right definitely likes to vilify Nancy Pelosi, but there's a lot of people on the left who don't think she's gone far enough, who I have a question here. Did Nancy work with all the female representatives before they made it into the House of Representatives? There was a lot made earlier this year of, you know, the the progressives and AOC and, you know, was the squad and Pelosi on the same side on things? Is she Did she push impeachment? fast enough um, from where you sit. I mean, especially being so involved in democratic San Francisco politics, which is like a whole nother world than most of the universe. I, how do you respond to those criticisms? Because I think you may come down further left than her on some things, right? Obviously. Um, I'm I, not I, running a national party. She is. So like, I, yeah. I, like, so how, like how do you, like, how do you guys have those conversations? Well, I tell the story in the book about how, the night before she passed the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, the mall, y'all might remember, was full of Tea Party people. You know, they had all these awful things. Obama is a witch doctor with a bone through his nose, all this racist stuff. They were spitting on her colleagues and claiming that they weren't. I mean, it was awful. This time, when they were fighting, after the 10,000 grassroots events and all of that, when they were fighting over um, efforts to keep it, this time the mall had progressives fighting the good fight and, and every group you can imagine. So I tell the story about how I'm, I'm here in San Francisco and I'm watching it on C-SPAN and I'm live tweeting it because that's what I do. And she's out there with, you know, move on and adapt and Center for Popular Democracy. Those members who weren't in jail, they get arrested a lot. Um, all sorts of people, right? You name it, they were there out on the moms this and moms that and little lobbyists, they're all out there. And she starts talking about John McCain. You know, John McCain, and we really hope that you know, he'll be able to make the Senate vote tomorrow from his sick bed. And I call her up and I'll leave her a message because she's obviously still talking. And I'm like, what about Maisie? Maisie Hirono, she's a senator with cancer who got off her sick bed to come and vote. So why aren't you talking about Maisie, right? I'm chair of the Women's Caucus, the California Democratic Party. My woman of color, where, you know, where's Maisie? Why aren't we talking about her? So she calls back. And she says, I received your very stern message. <laughs> Be calm. I have a plan. 
And I can tell you how many, like monthly, she'll say that. Because this was what about Maisie, but it could be what about impeachment or it's what about this or what about that. So you and like she channel all these, voice, these lefty voices and call her. Well, no, but I, I have it myself. I'm like, well, mom, no, what know, about but-, but here's the thing. So after when I'm writing the book and deconstructing it, so what happens the next morning? Um, John McCain goes into the Senate, talks to a couple people with the thumbs down, right? And uh, Trump care is defeated. And so I... I'm doing interviews for the book, and George Miller, former member of Congress from Contra Costa, big, big, great friend of hers of many years. So I tell the story to George. He laughs. He's like, come on. The last person to care was Maisie Hirono. Maisie knew Maisie was good. She knew the play was go after John McCain. You were worried about the wrong thing. As usual, your mom had a big plan, and you only saw the little part of it that you see, which is why aren't you out there promoting the progressive woman? She had a different plan, and Maisie was in on it. You just weren't, and she wasn't going to tell you what it was. What? <laughs> um, so, I think other people in the room can probably relate to that feeling. Like, what's the plan? Why do we you know? And and I think if you have one member of Congress representing San Francisco, you have the freedom to be San Francisco, and you should be there. But if you're the leader of the entire party, and you have to represent everybody, then you play a different role. I remember the first Gulf War. Um, we walked out of Marina. Uh, middle school, a town hall meeting that only ended because the war started. Like literally we went home to watch it on TV. Um, but people were walking out having a debate of like, well, what do we want? Do we want, um, are we trying to represent the entire, uh, you know, the entire peace movement? Or are we trying to do something in Congress? Like what is that debate? And I think the people of San Francisco have had that debate of a, for a long time. What is the price of leadership? Obviously, you're never going to get a more progressive speaker than Nancy Pelosi. You're just not. On the other hand, is would you have a, do you want a more progressive voice, but the person has less power? And then that's a choice that you have to make. And does power bring you the progressive ideas that you want? And I think the the key is to always have both and to be open and saying, look, we're going to take in all of the information. Um, but that night was about John McCain. And the other story I heard was that when she came in and made her phone calls, she put in a call to John McCain. And we didn't know till the next morning what he was going to do. But obviously, she made the call to him looking out on the mall instead of seeing the tea party she saw. Her people. Impeachment. What? what? You guys don't want to talk about impeachment, right? Nobody wants to talk about impeachment. Um, I mean, this was another area where there was a lot, you know, people felt on the left like it took too long. Um, Some did. And others, uh, three years ago this week, coming up next, in a few days, we marked three years from when I wrote a letter to then Director of National Intelligence, Clapper, and asked as a member of the Electoral College that the Electoral College get briefed on newspaper reports that the CIA had found a connection between Trump and Russia before the election and that they had manipulated um, the election illegally in favor of Donald Trump and that he knew about it. And we wrote this letter. Uh, Ten of us did. It became an Inform the Electors movement. We have been waiting three years for this. So I don't think anybody's been waiting longer than I have as the author of that letter and as a victim of WikiLeaks twice. They hacked the DNC and the DCCC. So they got me twice. Um, and she got on a plane and she turned off her phone and she got off the plane. And I was like, mom, text her. like, mom, mom, Matt Drudge, put your phone, cell phone number on his website. Do not listen to your messages. And she goes, 
Well, I got the message too late. I started listening to my voicemails, and you can imagine what they were. Part of the WikiLeaks dump in the summer, the electronic Watergate of the summer of 2016. So I don't think anybody was waiting longer than I was for this information that we still don't have. But it was why I was very protective of the Mueller investigation, because we didn't get a briefing as, as, as electors. We called ourselves the Hamilton electors, because Hamilton said in the Federalist Papers that the Electoral College should be a deliberative body. Now, I've been for getting rid of it for a long time, since 2011, when Schwarzenegger signed the uh, you know, Electoral College reform of you know fair vote, national popular vote. I've wanted to get rid of it. However, if we're going to have it, we should be deliberative. And that was my position. So it took us a long time to get the Mueller report. It's taken us a long time in court. He's still fighting. A year ago, when we were fighting Christine Blasey Ford's assailant, um, who made it to the Supreme Court, and they asked Newt Gingrich, well, isn't it, is it worth it to have Kavanaugh? Why couldn't they just replace him with another Gorsuch? Why do you have to have this person who has this problem? And he said, we'll find out when the Supreme Court rules on the tax returns, whether this fight for Kavanaugh was worth it. So now we're finding out. So they had a litigate strategy from the start. There are still some people now who are saying, well, now that we're in the impeachment inquiry, don't give up the uh, getting the other goods. Don't give up that other fight. But what happened was in September, um, as you all recall, the, the story came out about what happened with Ukraine, and they, but we need you to do a favor, though, and the demand um, that the Ukrainian um, government investigate, fabricate dirt on Joe Biden in exchange for money that Congress had already passed in a bipartisan way, and that was being held up. And at that point, I remember it was Wednesday morning, and um, it was right after that news had come out. It was Tuesday or Wednesday morning, and, and Donald Trump was supposed to be going to the U.N. to give a speech. Instead, he was calling Nancy Pelosi. First, he says, oh, I'm going to do something on gun violence prevention. She thought, okay, you're speaking my language. This is my big issue. And he says, you'll be very proud. We have all this progress going on. She's like, well, I'd like to know who you're talking to. You're not talking to my members. Then he segues into, my phone call was perfect. And she said, no, it's perfectly wrong. And now you're in my wheelhouse. And if you read the book, you'll see uh, we have some stories from Tim Romer, who is a congressman from Indiana, who um, wrote the bill for the 9-11 Commission, served on the 9-11 Commission, and later was an ambassador for Barack Obama. But he talks about being on the Intelligence Committee with Nancy Pelosi at the time when they wrote the whistleblower bill. They created the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. So... That as background to say when Nancy Pelosi said to the president, you're in my wheelhouse. No one served on the Intelligence Committee longer as a member and then as a congressional leader where she's there ex officio. No one has more information than she does by virtue of um, her national security clearance status. And so I think it's really critically important that we make it clear that no one is above the law and that the president is not above the law, and that what you cannot do is say, we're going to have, Congress is going to pass a bill, the president is going to sign it, and then the president is going to designate his decision to follow the law he signed as being a pre-decisionable um, topic that is immune from any congressional scrutiny, immune from every public scrutiny. We can't have that. And I'll just say to explain it, when I worked at HUD, one of the things we had to do is we had to come up with these decision memos. And so picture a notebook. And on one side, it's all the names of all the people that have signed off or the changes they've made on. On the other side, it's the policy and how it changes until you eventually have the decision memo. Now, those things we're finding out 
when they did the decision memo to release the Ukraine money, that all the careers were going on with release the money as a matter of course. And it was the politicals who intervened. And it was so upsetting to two, mar- to two people in the Office of Management and Budget that they quit. We're finding out now, when it comes to that decision memo in the Department of Justice, the inspector general, who works more like a cop internal affairs, is saying the Obama administration decision to investigate the Trump-Russia connection with an FBI investigation was legitimate. But now Bill Barr is trying to influence that decision. So we're finding out. And so, again, what we have to consider is this. Everything that goes up until sort of the final decision is pre-decisional because the president of the United States should be getting advice from his or her advisors over the right thing to do. But once you're done and you sign off, then that final product should be something that is discovered. And what you do to implement that decision, you're not pre-decisional. You've made a decision. That should be something that the public knows about. So that's what John Roberts really has to grapple with. Do I go with the Trump theory, which is that anything he does, because he hasn't decided whether he's going to do it yet, in between tweets, is going to be considered pre-decisional, right? Or... Is it going to be that anything that goes, that comes before an actual decision, a policy made, um, that's what's pre-decisional. After that, the public has a right to know. And that seems like a very technical thing, but that is actually um, where impeachment was going to turn. You saw today what the Republicans were trying to do with their response. They have said he didn't do anything wrong because it was worth looking at corruption in Ukraine, which might have been true if Joe Biden wasn't running for president. But the monkey wrench is that Joe Biden was running for president and that people have already testified under oath, under penalty of perjury, that it happened because Joe Biden was running for president. And that's why he cared about this country as opposed to some other country where we could be pursuing corruption. So I think it's going to happen. I think Nancy Pelosi has been very clear about the steps that need to be taken. I don't know what form it will take because we don't know if the president will come and have exculpatory, as she explained, information but to everybody who says, well, it's not worth impeaching over, good, come bring. The man that wrote The Art of the Deal should come in and make a deal and tell us, show us what the evidence is. Well, let's assume things progress as all of the, the pundits in my you know, sphere say, which is the House will probably vote to impeach and the Senate will not convict. What happens next? And I think more broadly, with a few minutes left tonight, how optimistic do you feel does your mother feel about democrats chances next year and about beating trump in 2020 well the most important thing is to remember that people went to congress to protect health care that was the message that we were going to protect our care that we were going to raise wages rebuild the economy in a green way that's why right now as we're sitting here in san francisco she is sitting in madrid at the u.n climate conference saying we're still in it Because cities like San Francisco, states like California, regions like the West, businesses are still in the Paris uh, Climate Accords. I know that the president rage quit, but it takes a year to unwind. So actually the final deadline is the day after the next year's election. So that's good incentive to elect a climate forward president. Um, But the fact is... We have things we have to do and to and to try to have election reform, to try to have campaign finance reform. Um, 
there's a big, big fight right now that's going on with prescription drug costs. Um, so there are certain things that Donald Trump wants and needs. In the book, I mentioned the very, very, very first meeting, the meeting that yielded the um, the president taunting Nancy Pelosi and Nancy Pelosi saying, please don't characterize the strength I bring to this meeting as the leader of the House Democrats who just won a great victory. And then um, one of the things that they talk about is um, funding for the government. We're still in that fight right now. So the first thing they have to do is keep government open. I think everybody wants to have a spending agreement um, before we get to articles of impeachment so we can get that done. Certainly one isn't going to be held hostage for the other. And uh, and then the president actually has to run on a record um, of doing of, of accomplishing certain things. So I think that it will be time for the senators to take a look at the evidence. There's still time for the president to participate. He was insisting up until last week that he had no due process and no um, representation in the hearings. Now he's been offered the chance to have an attorney and he says, well, I don't want to bring an attorney. So, you know, he keeps moving the goalposts out of the stadium. So we have to go to the next stadium and get in them, and look at what they are. But I think that what happens is that we have a very robust debate in the Democratic primary about health care, how fast, how many people what the coverage looks like. We have a fight about um, what a just transition to a green economy looks like. Again, how fast, how far, how many, bringing in the industrial and the indigenous communities together in dialogue. Um, we have an argument about um, what sorts of economic policies make the most sense? What does the future of look, work look like? And uh, how do we bring economic security and, and uh, diplomacy and peace and stability to the world? And we'll be doing a lot of that. And while all of that is happening, Trump will have to respond with something. And so I think it's going to be a very, very uh, robust uh, discussion. I think that Democrats are ready for the fight, and my prediction is that we will win. We are going to leave it there. Our great thanks to Christine Pelosi, author of the new book, The Nancy Pelosi Way, for joining us today. We'd also like to remind our audience that pre-signed copies of Christine's book are available for purchase outside this room. I'm Marisa Lagos. On behalf of myself, the Commonwealth Club, and Christine, thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Good night. Thank you. How do you do that? Thank you. Hi.